All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning to everybody, or hello to everybody out in uh, Internet land. It may not be morning where you're at right now. Um, I'm glad you can join us. I'm certainly glad going through that Bible study, there's not a problem with baldness or I'd be... <laughs> I could be in serious trouble. <laughs> um, I'm just going to jump right into my sermon. I can't think of any announcements I need to make. You know, there appears to be a lot of cryptic visions. Theologians, historians, and Bible scholars struggle to interpret, especially over the last 2,000 years that come from our scriptures. One of those visions is where the Messiah instructed the Apostle Paul to write down and deliver to the churches of God a, a, a message. And that came in the, in the form of a book we call Revelation. Now, there's been many sermons, books, and theology projects, by the bucket loads, I should say, that have been offered up to help discern the meanings of the things that are in Revelations, like in Revelation 4 and 5, where you might ask yourself, well, who is the figure that sits on the throne? Or who are the 24 elders? I've heard all these questions. What are the four living creatures that are there that surround the throne and service the throne? And is this just end-time projection, or is this a complete period of man over which we're looking at in prophecy? Um... Who is the conquering king in Revelation 6, verse 1, that sits on the white horse? Who are the two witnesses of Revelation 11, serving as warnings to the beast and the false prophets who has two horns like a lamb? And what is a beast with the two horns like a lamb? What is that? And what is a great, and who is a great prostitute, I should say, who sits by many waters in Revelation 17 as a reference. Now, I've thrown my two bits in the ring, and I have written about these figures and times, and some may say I see things a little differently. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But looking below the surface of these confusing verses sometimes, we, we can discover that there's much to compare to our world today, especially out of the book of Revelations, because most people do believe that that is primarily end-time prophecy. And we see other things that are tend to be or seem to be entirely unworldly-like. And a lot of this stuff can just simply make your head spin. But today, we see many things that appear to be apocalyptic in our society out here as we look and we compare them to Revelation, especially if they hold their present course as the way things are going in society. And because we see threats popping up all around the world, especially in ways that we hadn't anticipated or hadn't existed up until the last say, 100 years. But especially in our nation, in the last two years, we've been subject to complete lawlessness, and our government has seemed to have turned a blind eye to this. And many believe that if, if we 
just simply succeed in replacing our government or those holding offices this coming Tuesday, it'll fix the problem. Okay. I don't think so, but I mean, it can't hurt, you know. <laughs> I see a different figure controlling our government, which looks beast-like in nature and has many heads. Now, you can tell me what these heads represent. I, like I said, I've, I've read all kinds of descriptions as to what these things mean and different things, and different people have different ideals about it. But when we read Revelation 13, verses 1 through 3, it'll give us a starting point. And it says, And I saw the beast rise out of the sea. Now, I, I'm going to give you my idea on this, and you can plug your ears if you want or whatever. You don't have to listen. But that's not a literal beast coming out of a literal sea. What that is is a, is a government coming out of the people. And having seven heads and ten horns, upon his horns are ten crowns, and upon his head is the name of blasphemy. Well, <laughs> I mean, with our leaders today, you could say that, that fits a lot of them. But let's keep going in verse 2. It says, And the beast I saw was like a cat of the mountain, and his feet were the feet of a bear, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So what we see here is we see Satan is in control of this. Satan is giving him the message to give to the people or control the people or however, however they're trying to do what they're trying to do. Now, we can't fix our problems today in our government, just staying in that in that um, kind of train of thought there, by replacing one head of the beast with another. It's the same beast, right? And I know we can't stop the prophecies from being fulfilled. That's like trying to stop air from flowing. You know, and we don't have time today to perform some kind of forensic examination on all the subjects I just listed above. So what we're going to do is, and what I've decided to do is just to look at the most popular one and use scripture as to guide us as to what that possibly could be, and maybe that will enlighten us on what some of the other things in those scriptures or in the revelations are. So the mark is important. That's what I want to speak about today, because it, it is what defines the people. It's what defines who is Satan and who is the Messiah. And I think we already have a good idea as to what the beast is, but we need to know what that beast, what the mark of that beast is, and it, whether we are carrying it, whether we have it on us, or whether somebody has forced it on us, or whether we've unwillingly accepted it. Now, If we'll turn to Revelation 14, 9 through 13, let's read, begin to read the account for this reference. And we'll start in verse 9. And it says, And a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine 
of God's fury, which has been poured out, or poured full, excuse me, into the cup of his wrath. And they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of his holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives a mark of its name. Now, and, and well, let's go in verse 12. Let's read the whole thing. This calls for patience, endurance on the part of God's people to keep his commands and judgments and remain faithful to, to the Messiah. And then in verse 13 it says, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right and blessed are the dead who die in the eternal from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. But he talks about this mark, and it's a mark of his name is basically what it says. And we always say it's a mark of the beast. But to here it tells us it's a mark of his name. And in these verses we see the figure called the beast and those that carry the name as as one unit or as, as one one entity. Now, before I dive too deep into the subject, let me make some disclaimers. I don't expect everyone to agree with me on my evaluation because as I said earlier, there are many different thoughts on these verses. And number two, I understand many commentaries have already been written about the meaning of the mark and by men with letters per that go before their name that are stacked higher than the ceiling have talked about. And number three, applying simple observation and good old common sense to what we see in today's Sodom-like culture as our backdrop may inform us as to what a lot of this is. So we need to follow the advice of the Messiah in Matthew chapter 24, the parable of the fig tree, when addressing part of John's vision. And we'll start in verse 32, because I think it's important that we, we get this kind of mindset before we get into too deep into what the mark of the beast is, because we need to know, we need to have some, some um, backdrop, I, I guess that's the right word. And he goes on to say, he says, now learn the parable from the fig tree, as soon as its branches become tender and sprouts its leaves, you know that summer's near. In verse 33, so you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. And truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, what does that, what does that say about the Old Testament? Just a, just a side note there. And it goes on in verse 36, he says, about that day... An hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, nor the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will be the coming of the, of, of the Son of Man. And at that time, oh, well, I don't want to go any further than that. But two things I feel like we need to look closely at when we look at these verses as a reference to Revelation 14. 
One, why did the Messiah use the example of Noah? <clears throat> That's very interesting because he says <clears throat> they were given in marriage and marrying and they were living normal lives. They were doing what normal people do and yet all of a sudden the flood came. Yet they were ignorant of what they were doing wrong. Apparently so because he said they were eating, drinking, marrying until the day Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came. And all of a sudden... Apparently they had some understanding because when the flood came, all of a sudden they understood. So a lot of people know what the, knew what the truth was, let me put it that way, knew what the truth was, but apparently they didn't practice it because they weren't considered righteous like Noah. And that time the people were so corrupt and evil, God destroyed all of human life. Well, had they understood and changed, would God have, have changed his mind? Well, I tend to think he probably would have. Remember, you know, Abraham standing up there bar bartering, or bartering for the people inside Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, I have to ask a question, can we get any more evil than what we see in, in, in this world today compared to prior to the flood? What were they doing that we're not doing? I can't even contemplate that. And is this part of the time, this part of John's vision? I don't know. Some have, could have estimated there could have been as many as 24 billion people prior to the flood. We've got like 8 billion people on the planet today. And some people have estimated there could have been as many as 24 billion people. That's a lot of oil. You won't get my, <laughs> my little joke there. <clears throat> But it's like the penny, you know, and you say, well, how did they do that in 1,500 years? Well, it's like the penny trick. You take it, you know, I'll give you a million dollars in, in, you know, in 30, or, or, in thir or give you a penny a day for every day for 30 days. Which do you want? Well, take the penny a day. You're going to come out way ahead. Well, the t second thing I want to point out at Matthew 24, it says, is that the Messiah is using agriculture to show the times when we should become concerned about his coming. You say, well, how's that? Well, he's using a fig tree. And he's using the seasons. And he's saying, look at these things and look at them and tell me, or tell yourself what you see in the world and how this world is evolving just like the seasons do. Fall is symbolic when the branches and leaves begin to die and fall away. And when most trees and plants go dormant or sleep until spring arrives again. Is this some kind of symbolic imagery of God's people falling away from the truth in the Bible? Or the scriptures, I should say? 
And is it a time when the world goes into a slumber? Particularly God's people? And are many people waking up and realizing that the churches of God have become lethargic and falling asleep and into a deep slumber in these last days? I believe so. And I say that because we see little care taken in, in determining God's scriptures, especially in, in, in the churches, in his churches. So I'll use the analogy to illustrate God's people and how it is it has how they have evolved over the last century. God's churches have abrogated the responsibility for biblical correctness to the Jewish leaders which admittedly aren't always correct. You realize that? Well, when we don't know We'll just default to them. And, and look, I'm not, I'm not against the Jewish people and against what they believe. I'm, I'm really not. They got a lot of wonderful information. We've dug a lot of wonderful information out. But you've got to check them. Right? Just like you have to check everything else. And it's sort of like, I, I make the analogy, it's sort of like a beautiful olive tree that's sitting there and in, in, in growing in the ground that's got its roots and everything, and they're going underground. <clears throat> and sitting next to it is a juniper or mulberry tree, which are both native in Israel. And the olive tree is sapping the sap or the, the nutrients off of these two trees. And the point I'm trying to make is God's churches rely too much on the teachings of other, of other uh, religions. Instead of letting themselves be guided by their own spiritual nourishments. And it's not always wrong, as I said, but scriptures teaches, teach us to seek our own understanding. Do you realize that? In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Trust in the eternal with thine heart, and let not, and learn not unto thy own understanding. So, it, trusting the eternal to our own understanding means that we go dig up the scriptures to learn what he has to say. We don't let somebody else tell us what they mean. But the argument used, <clears throat> used to say that knowledge comes from the same roots of these trees, in my analogy, and say that, well, it's, it, no, it doesn't matter if it comes from the juniper, or it comes from the mulberry, or it comes from the olive tree, it's all the same knowledge, it's all the same spiritual nourishment. And I say, yes, that's true, but defaulting to others' interpretation is the quickest way to become deceived. If we're an olive tree, we don't want what the juniper tree is getting. And yes, our, our roots are somewhat tangled, in my analogy. I get that. 
we all came from the same origins. But I'm not going to keep Sunday. I'm not going to keep Christmas. And that's what they teach. I'm saying that the churches of God should evaluate scriptures from ancient writings and historical manuscripts and not just take the lead from the Jewish, Catholic, or any other culture or any other church. And I, I'm not, like I said, not putting down the Jews like the Christian culture does. Jews play an important role in God's plan. Now, God's church in the early days of the last century sprouted into a blossoming plant, all green spreading out, and they did that very quickly. It was like they were in the spring of their life. And the church grew into a huge tree, spreading out, creating many branches and giving shade to the rest of, of or to many people out in the world. But as time passed, it reached an apex in the middle of its summer, and it began to decline. And the church declined. But before that, it's, it, it created many branches that were separate but part of the same tree. And now, as we go into fall and into these, these, the end time, we see the tree or the church trying to enter into a period of hibernation or slumber. Sadly, the summer heat or the heat of the world has sapped the nourishment and the energy from many of those branches and some have died and many more have completely stopped growing. And we see God's churches in many parables that the Messiah gave when he was alive and walking on the earth and he, he gave them in, many times in an unfavorable light. And yet, they still take no heed. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? We see these things. We see these parables like, like the fig tree. And yet, we don't, we don't take them serious. And, and folks, I'm not even talking about the Christian world at this point. The religions outside God's churches, well, they are a larger example of this parable, but they're not what this parable, or not who this parable was directed at. And they too, they have begun dying on the vine, just, just as God's churches have, bereft of morals and any semblance of the true ways of God. And you say, okay, but what does that have to do with the mark in Revelation 14? Well, I'm glad you asked. We read in Strong's <laughs> Greek 5480, the word for mark is charma or kargma, if I say that correct, from the same as 5482, a scratch, an etching, a stamp, a badge, a servitude, a sculptured figure, a graven mark. And a mark is a result of worship, worshiping the name, and it's not for servitude. It can't be applied unwillingly. It's sort of like claiming that you're a leaf on that tree, 
but you belong to a different tree. We are identified by, by what we are and how we project ourselves outside going out. That's how we're identified. If we're carrying a mark, then what we do and what we say is going to tell the world who we are. We keep the Sabbath. So all my neighbors say, all them nuts are getting together again today. <laughs> and that's okay. We are projecting God's Sabbath day into their lives unknowingly. Just by doing what He commands us to do. Now the Messiah, well He's one tree. And we're part of that tree. And he tells us that we are one church, and we are part of that church. In Romans chapter 11, 17 through 27, <clears throat> he says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And you see, that's what happens. And then the point he's trying to make is, when we become part of the tree, or the branches of the tree, and the branches of the tree are out here, and they're going, well, we're supporting the trunk. The trunk can't survive without us. We make the rules. We say what is doctrine and what isn't doctrine. And the trunk goes, okay, well, you're not getting any more nourishment. You'll just fall off. We'll see who supports who. So you, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that's, that's a Christian world. Well, the Jews, well, they messed up. So now we're God's people. And we, we're something special. We're something wonderful. And our laws and our determination of God's Scripture is going to tell Him how we are going to live and what we are going to do. And, many, and sadly, many of God's churches have the same attitude. And what does He say? Well, quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, uh, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness or otherwise, you too will be cut off, and they will also. But do not continue in their unbelief. will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and contrary to the nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more who uh, will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Well, Israel, they stumbled and fell because they made mistakes, just like God's churches and just like everybody else. And 
the churches today, well, they're just following in their footsteps. Because they became arrogant, believing that they kept the trunk alive and the trunk hasn't, isn't keeping them alive. And in God's eyes, this made them unusable. And they became worse than the world around them. Look again at what it says in Revelation 14.9. And a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand. So, we've got to make sure we're part of the right tree, that we're grafted into the right tree, and we're not grafted into something else. Because remember, there's only one tree of God and there's only one tr uh, church of God. You have to understand that before you can understand what this mark is. If you can't understand that very simple thought, then you'll never grasp what, what the mark of Satan is or the mark of the beast is. I'm sorry, you just won't. And... And I'll, ha I'll admit that most of the churches of God have seen this mark that is willingly applied by the masses of religious people in this world. And I agree. I agree with that assessment. It makes perfect sense that they willingly apply this. But two, they smugly reject what they do not understand when they are subject to the anger of the Messiah and the Father. Let's go back to our Christian fans for a moment. Because we first must recognize some symbolism embedded in the Scripture. All indications say the mark must be displayed somehow on the person's body. Just like a leaf identifies what tree it is. Indications say either on one hand or on the forehead, and both are mentioned. That shows this mark, that, that displays this mark, that projects this mark. So you have, first thing you have to ask yourself, why these two places are, are so significant? I mean, when you look at people's tattoos today, you're liable to see them anywhere on a person's body. So why these two places? Well, the head is where the mind is and where we make our decisions. And some have argued that it's where the soul or the spirit resides in man in the frontal lobe. And some... And, and what is certain, though, is it's where our character is developed and where we learn to determine right and wrong. And it's where we form bonds and decide if we're going to follow the true God or not and follow His ways. And the Messiah said we are to love Him from our hearts and mind as an example. 
in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, and he said, You shall love the, the eternal your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the hand shows a willingness to accept, a willingness to agree. You know, humans are one of, the, one of only a few creatures on this planet that has a disposable thumb or deposable thumb that allows us to grasp onto things. And a clear indication, man is set apart from the rest of animals on this planet. We can build, we can throw, we can hold on to things that we deem important. So John tells us that this mysterious mark is something the world is willingly accepts from its entirety and he calls a mark a sign of worshiping the beast or its name. And so we willingly reach out and we grasp that image, that name, and we take it, and we make it ours. Most, if not all, commentaries agree that this, this political system, this entity, has ruled man since Adam and will continue to do so until Christ returns. And most of God's churches, well, they unite in the agreement that the beast is a geopolitical religious system that seems to want to take control and destroy God's people. So the question we have to ask ourselves, why would the masses of people willingly follow such a vile entity that the scriptures plainly calls a beast? Especially when we see the end times just over the horizon. When we see the dark proverbial winter closing in. Because like trees in nature, they're preparing us for slumber prior to the Messiah coming. Yes, it w many are waking up. But the majority are tend to be going into a sleep for some reason. They seem to be lethargic. They seem to be complacent. They seem to be willing to accept the status quo. I see another clue in the identity of the beast in Revelation 13:11, where he says, Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. I see this as a political system having two sides to itself, represented by the two horns. First, its horns are like a lamb, not a goat, not a deer, not a bull, but a lamb. And I've asked the question in the past, why is this lamb's horns? Why did he feel it necessary to add that in there? Because words and scriptures, well, they aren't placed there simply by happenstance. They have meaning. Are we looking at a political system having lamb-like horns? Could it have something to do with the symbolism of the Messiah being called a lamb? 
John chapter 1, verse 29. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Could this possibly be a geopolitical system that is religious-based? Could one horn represent a religious side and the other horn a government in sync with its every move? I look out into the world landscape and I see such a beast that looks exactly like this in description. And here's where I typically get in trouble. I see that beast as the Vatican in Rome that has heavy influences or, or great amount of influences in governments around the world, past and present. This entity has been the rudder guiding the world events since its, since its creation some 1,700 years ago. And it actually goes back farther than that, but it was just called something else. And kings and presidents bow to their leader and kiss his hand in, its, in their allegiance. In modern world wars, the Catholic Church has offered support on both sides of the same conflict. This church, this Catholicism, has spawned many children in its, in its shadows. And we see this in Revelation 17, verses 1 through 7. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. It means that she's sitting on many different continents, sitting on many different cultures and in many different peoples, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of sexual immorality. And those who live on the earth became drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. We see, boy, that, that just fits to a T is what's going on today. And he carried me away in spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemy and names and having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls and holding the hand a cup of full abominations of unclean things and of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead the name was written Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Then I saw her and wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. So this is where we come face to face with the mark of the beast. This is where we see where the masses have embraced this particular mark. And they have taken it on as themselves because the masses of the people around the world, whether they are the offspring or whether they are part of the original church, bow to this entity and worship.
And as I already said, from her were born the many different denominations like so many children. We see that in chapter 17 of the same chapter, verse 15. He said to me, the waters which you saw where the prostitutes sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. <clears throat> it's a religion that's given, that gives alternatives to everything that God gave his people in accordance with his will. And yet we see counterfeits, we see duplicates, we see everything that God has created, duplicated. Her children dutifully follow those alternatives like Sunday worship instead of Sabbath worship. The Catholic Church has made these abominations her sign, her mark. And the Catholic Church, well, they affirm their authority to appoint different times and seasons and was given them by the apostles and passed down to the bishops through the laying on of hands for the sake of governance of the church on earth. In the Code of the Canon Law, the Catholic Church, Book 4, Functions of the Church, Part 3, Sacred Places and Times, Title 2, Sacred Times, Canon 1244 through 1253, Chapter 1, Feast Days, it says, Sunday on which by apostolic tradition and the Pascal mystery is celebrated must be observed in universal church as primordial holy day of obligation. The following days must be observed, the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the epiphany of the ascension, the body and blood of the Christ Holy Mary, Mother of God and her immaculate conception. And Assumption, and St. Joseph, St. Peter, and St. Paul, the apostles, all the saints. That's what you're supposed to worship. So what this is, is they claim the authority to change times and laws of God, just like what's written in the books of, book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, 23 through 25. And this is, this is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth which will be different from all other kingdoms. This is a Catholic church. And will devour the whole earth and trample it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of the kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will humble the three kings. And he will speak against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And, and he will intend to make alterations in times and laws and they will be handed over to him for times, times and a half a time. The only difference between the beasts of old and the one that we have today, in the centuries past, there was little separation of the church and state. And the beast received its but the, today we see an attempt to separate ourselves from this power, but we can't because it's ingrained within us, in our society. The beast has received its power from government and religion and enforcing its will on the people. That's why, yes, I voted, but I don't think it's going to make a bit of good <laughs> because, like I said, Voting for the same head or a different head on the same beast isn't voting for the same uh, difference or isn't voting for difference. 
The beast lives today both politically and religiously and is still as powerful as it ever was and still controls governments to a very large degree. And the mark that Christians use to identify themselves to say that they belong to a church, that they belong to God, well, these are the signs that they belong to the opposite. Now, I'm not putting down people that call themselves Catholic, the people, or those that call themselves Christians. I'm not putting those down in a bad way. I'm not. I'm talking about your governments. I'm talking about your structure. I'm talking about the, what your church teaches. Because you've been lulled into a, sum, a slumber, a lethargic state of mind, accepting everything that churches have taught in the past. But God says it's time for you to come out. It's time for you to leave that system. Revelation 18.4 I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. So those marks of Christianity with all their wrappings, well, those are visual. Those are things that we see. And they mean for you to see them. Because they want you to know that they belong. Just like we come to church on Sabbath and the people see us, they go to church on Sunday and we see them. They worship at the wrong times and at the wrong days of the year. How do I know this? Because the Creator God is, has His own mark on His own people. His own sign. Can you guess what that is? Exodus 31.12 If you were reading ahead. <clears throat> now the Eternal spoke to Moses saying, Now as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, You must keep my Sabbath for this is a sign between you and me throughout your generation so that you may know that I am the Eternal who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to keep the Sabbath for it is holy to you and everyone who profanes it must be put to death for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day, seventh day, seventh day, day and I can prove that we are keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day just by reading scripture For and he goes on to say holy to the eternal whoever does any work on the Sabbath must be put to death so the sons of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a, per, a permanent covenant it's a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from his labor and was refreshed. You can also see a similar reading of this in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. This is the Creator God's sign, His mark. And what has the beast done? He has counterfeited the mark. And he has convinced the masses of this world, 99% of the people in this world, that this, his way is correct and not God's way. My question is, are, 
Are you convinced? What sign do you carry? Do you carry the beast mark or do you carry the mark of the Messiah? The mark of the Creator? Which mark do you carry? And which mark do you display? Well, back to the tree that I use as my analogy to finish this sermon. The Messiah said we need to feed off Him, to get our nourishment from Him, and not the other things around us, not the other trees, not the other plants. John 7, 37-38. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And who, and the one, excuse me, Verse 38, the one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of, rivers of living water. You know, most mainstream denominations, well, they believe their doctrine is correct. And that what they know and what they learn and what they do comes from the pages of the Bible. And the people that are sitting in those pews, well, they would never bow down to such an entity like the one described in the book of Revelation. But they too, well, they refuse to believe anything other than what their preacher teaches them. This, folks, is the power of Satan and the beast. He's given them strong Delusions. The Father said He's given them strong delusions that He might have mercy upon them. And Satan takes full advantage of that. But God's churches, well, they're not immune to the influences of the world. And they too can be inadvertently coerced into the sins of the beast. So we have to wake up and recognize where we are in the history of man.